0: Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. This morning I want to share a message with you entitled The Ice Axe of Scripture. The Ice Axe of Scripture. And I want to look at the effect that God's word has in our lives and and the effect that it had in Jeremiah's life as well. Part of living in South Africa at the moment is dealing with load shedding. How many of you are inventing creative ways to you know deal with those four hours a day that the power goes out and you have to pretend like it's the 1850s again? You know, I've been studying up on my butter churning and my you know my, my hide tanning and, um, and and all these things, you know, just really looking forward to that. But but one of the toughest things for me about load shedding is, you know, they've started doing the load shedding from 8 p.m. in the evening until, like, just past midnight, and so that inevitably falls within the realm, you know, of that time period where we want to fall asleep, and uh, one of the things that my wife and I love, you know, falling asleep to is, you know, we, we struggle to fall asleep if the fan, the ceiling fan, isn't on, because I feel like there's a recipe for good sleep, right? Number one, no crying babies. Right? It took me a few years to get that one right. So when you have no crying babies, the next thing that you want is you want white noise and you want moving air, and uh, and when those two things are there, then you feel like you can just rest and sleep, and it's the moving air, and you're not being woken up by every little sound outside, you know. Um, but when there's load shedding, how many of you know it goes deathly quiet? Like you hear every I mean there could be a mouse cleaning his whiskers outside your window and you 're hearing it, and so what this leads you know the issue for me is is that I keep waking up and i keep I hear a sound and I go and I investigate. I get up and I go, look in the house, what was that sound? I check through the windows, make sure everything is quiet and everything is safe and uh, you know it usually turns out to be the ice in the freezer defrosting sounds like someone breaking in but but uh, but I struggle to fall asleep because of the lack of that of that white noise, and as I was preparing this week, I was thinking about how much noise we're exposed to in this world, how much information we get, how many uh, little snippets of of input we receive from so many different sources, people that have different philosophies, different views, different uh, uh, you know ways of 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 believing and 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 approaching life, different worldviews that we are confronted with on a daily basis. The amount of information. We're exposed to in this world, and because there are so many people trying to get their point across, it ends up with people trying to be, everybody's trying to be louder than the next person. Everybody's trying to make more noise than the person next to them. Everybody's trying to get their view and their point across, or trying to sell their product, and, um, and this leads us to being overwhelmed by the noise, promises, protests, posts, you know, there's hardly a second in any given day where some new bit of information doesn't arrive at our senses. And this can be incredibly overwhelming. And how many of you have just kind of felt, you know, while you were scrolling on social media and you actually stop and you're like, I feel so tired of this. I feel so tired of of the constant new bits of information that my brain has to process. And so how we cope with this, how we've learned to cope, is to drown it all out and to let it become that white noise. It's just got to become like a steady drone in the background. In other words, we no longer allow information to genuinely impact us. It just skims the top of our heads and we forget about it in a moment. It's becoming an ancient art to really sit and listen and hear and take in and allow things to, you know, to, to meditate. David writes about how he would meditate in God's word. It doesn't mean he would just read and, okay, I've read my scripture for the day and I've done my devotions for the day and, okay, what's next? It means that he reads something and he, he just marinates in it. He just sits there and allows it to permeate his soul. What does this mean for my life? What is God speaking to me? He allows God to speak through the scriptures, through his word. Instead of it just being more information that we take on board and forget what we've read by midday, by the time it's lunchtime, you can't even remember the scripture you read. There's something that, that is a lost art, which is, which is just to sit and, and hear and listen to God's voice and learn and to allow the truth to penetrate our hearts. So many people are, are numb to the world. And I think it's because, in essence, uh, people have been inoculated against Jesus. They've been inoculated against, um, against the truth of God's word. I don't know, for, for those of you that are parents, the worst inoculations ever is when you have to take your few months old baby for their first inoculations. And I remember taking my oldest son, Eli, for his inoculations. It was at a medic clinic. And the doctor told me he needs two jabs and they're both going to go into his two little thighs. And they said the first one stings a little, but the second one really hurts. And I looked over at his face, and when they, st- he was so happy that day. That's the worst. Like if he's having a bad day already, then let the bad day continue. But he was so happy, and he was lying there, this little baby, and he was actually smiling at me. He was just such a chuffed little boy. And then they, and then they stabbed him in the one thigh, and, and the smile disappeared. No reaction, but the smile just went away. He was like, "What is happening to me right now?" You know. And he looks over at me like, "Dad, why have you forsaken me?" And, and then they jabbed him in the other thigh, and he just he screamed, he was just crying, and I may or may not have cried a little bit as well. But inoculations, in essence, deliver just a little bit of the virus or the disease that they're inoculating against, so that the body can develop a resistance against the full-blown effect of that disease. And this is essentially what a lot of our society has experienced when it comes to the word of God, when it comes to the scriptures, when it comes to the message of Jesus and the gospel and his sacrifice for us on the cross. It's almost like those words don't even have an effect on us anymore. Jesus died for you. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that. I heard it in Sunday school. I heard it when when my parents dragged me off to church at Easter time. I heard it when the chaplain at the school was speaking. I've heard it. Jesus died for me and I must repent and I must turn to him and he'll give me a new life. I've heard it. But we don't hear it. You know, the, the, the sound comes across, but we're numb. We're We've been inoculated. We've received just enough of Jesus to think that we don't need any more of Him. This is the issue that we have in our world, is that people allow the Word of God to become a part of the white noise, and they no longer allow it to confront them, to change them, to challenge them to speak into their lives, to permeate their hearts and minds. We know nothing of the delight that David spoke of when he said in Psalm 109, verse 113, he said, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Come on, how many of you got some chocolate stashed away at home? It's sweet. It's sweeter than chocolate in your mouth. Psalm 119, verse 24, David says, Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. My soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. God's word has the ability to bring life, to infuse the life of God, the grace of God, the the, the presence of Jesus with our lives. And this is what the scripture should be like. Scripture is not a tame thing. This book is the most dangerous book in the world. It's the only book that has been banned from from country to country, regime to regime, government to government because of the power of what it does in people's lives when they begin to read this book. This is weapon grade in my hands right here. It has caused revivals and, and it has toppled governments and it has changed lives. It has influenced communities and nations and our globe since the moment it was put in our hands. The word of God is living, it's active, it's powerful, it it accomplishes, it does something. Somebody once told me that if God had to give me all of his power at one time, I would just be a pile of dust on the ground. But what God did is he took all of his power and he infused it with his word and he sent it over to us to unlock. It's kind of like when you have to email a big file, and you can't send the 200 megabyte file across email, and so what you do is that you zip it down, and you send a zipped file, and the only thing the person on the other side has to do is to unzip it in order to to see the full resolution of the file that's been sent, and that's what God has done with his power. He put His power infused with the Holy Spirit into His Word. He zipped it into a book that we can hold in our hands. Just think about that for a moment. You can hold the entire counsel and revelation of the gospel in your hand. You can read it. And you can unzip the power of God in your life. Why do we not do this? Why do we struggle to do this? Why do we run to every other source of information? Rather than turning to the Word of God. My little boy Leo, he's in grade one, he can't read properly yet, but he got a little New Testament, one of those little Gideon's Bibles this last week, and so in the car on the way home from school, the little Bible was there, and he pretended to read it for himself, so he goes, so he opens it up, and now he's he's pretending, he's even struggling to read, although he's not reading, he's like, just to make it more authentic, which I thought was pretty good, you know, he's like, so God God said, you know, but that's not even what it says, but um, he goes... This is, so he's now reading the contents page, and he's like, this is everything about the life of Jesus. And then he goes, chapter 1, God says, never, ever give up, because I am with you, right? I was like, that's a pretty, pretty good summation of the Bible there, although chapter 1 doesn't start like that. But but we've got the Word of God, even a child can lean into it, Right? From the youngest of ages, we can lean into the scriptures and what they mean. Franz Kafka, who was a Czech novelist, he wrote in a letter once, he said this, If the book we are reading does not wake us, as with a fist hammering on our skull, why then do we read it? A book must be like an ice axe to break the sea frozen inside of us. The book that we read should be hammering on our skulls like fists hammering on your head. It should wake something. It should break something. It should challenge something. And there's no greater ice axe than the ice axe of Scripture as God's word floods our lives and washes over us. We teach and preach and proclaim God's word with absolute confidence because we understand what others are yet to find out that in the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. This will save your life. It'll change your life. It'll introduce you to Jesus. It's a double-edged sword slicing down to where the soul and the spirit meet. It's able to cut through all the white noise and all the information and all the, all the things we read. It's able to slice through all of that and bring us right to the crux of where the soul and the spirit meet. There is nothing like the power of God's word. When we read it, we're not encountering information. We're not just meeting with little bits or little stories. We're encountering a person. We're encountering Jesus himself. It's his spirit that we encounter through the word. In John 1 verse 1, it tells us that it uses the word word as synonymous with the word Jesus. Because that's how infused they are. That's how God inhabits His own word. That's how alive He is in His own promises. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things that were made were made through Him. And without Him, not anything that was made was made. In Him, it says, was life, and the life was the light of men. And then in verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh. The Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. We've encountered His glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is what we encounter when you read the Word of God. It's Jesus Himself. The you know, what we are, in, are supposed to receive through the Word is a relationship with Jesus. It's a personal walk with Him. It's not principles to be applied. And that's, that's what frustrates me about how many people, you know, when they say, oh, the Bible is a, it's, it's a, it's a manual for how to live life, as if you can cut and paste the principles out of this book into your life and just fulfill them. I'm just going to fulfill it just in my own strength. I'm just going to do it. It's easy. It's just some good advice. This is not advice. It's news. It's news of something that's been done for you before it gives you any kind of an imperative to do something for yourself. This is something that Jesus has done. We encounter Him through the Scriptures. And because we encounter Him, it's an ice axe that smashes the frozen sea inside of us. It destroys all complacency and it forces a decision. The one thing that you cannot be after reading the Scriptures is neutral. It doesn't allow neutrality. You're either going to reject it outright and literally come to hate this book, or you're going to submit your life to it. It's either going to change your entire life, or you're going to have to discard it and walk away from it and, and refuse to look at it. But you cannot remain neutral, it makes apathy impossible. And this is why people avoid the Bible, it's why they avoid the scriptures. The vast majority of people who criticize the Bible have never even read it. If you ask them, so have you read the Bible? No, I just don't agree with it. Well, what is it that you don't agree with? Not just everything it says. But what does it say? No, I don't know. I just don't agree with it, right? And the reason why they do that, why people who criticize the Bible never even read the Bible, is because they're afraid of what they would encounter if they actually read it, and it turned out to be true, and it meant that their lives would need to change. They don't want their comfort and their personal preferences disturbed. They don't want to be awakened to something. But when they do, even those that have sought to disprove the Bible in reading it, they've had this ice axe smash the sea inside of them. And they've been awakened to the reality of God and the gospel. It is life-changing. Abraham Heschel once said, Of all things on earth, words alone never die. They have so little matter and so much meaning. God took these Hebrew words and breathed into them his power. The Bible tells us that all of God's word is God breathed, that ruach spirit, his his wind, his spirit, his life is infused with the scriptures. He breathed into them his power and the words became a live wire charged with his spirit. To this very day, they are hyphens between heaven and earth. So in the book of Jeremiah, the first ice axe, uh, you know, we've studied it enough now to see the impact of the book of Deuteronomy as it was discovered in the temple. They were restoring and repairing the temple and they found an ancient scroll hidden in the temple and it turned out to be the book of Deuteronomy, the words of Moses as he stood in the plains of Moab and, and, uh, and charged the people of God to remain faithful in the promised land. And they took these words and they, and they read it out and it, and it had an impact. It was an ice axe that smashed their complacency and it charges them all to initiate this widespread reform in Israel. The, the, the young king, Josiah, hears the words of Deuteronomy and he literally tears his clothing and, his, and he's heartbroken over the evil of his grandfather and his father. And he said, we are going to change things here in Israel. It is going to bring change to this nation. Reading the scriptures brought change to the nation. He overturns the evil done by his father and grandfather. In 2 Kings 22 verse 8, we see this. It says, Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found a book of the law in the temple of the Lord. He gave it to Shaphan who read it. Then Shaphan, the secretary, went to the king and reported to him, your officials have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the workers and supervisors at the temple. They were restoring the temple. Then Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the law, the book of the law, he tore his robes. And and this was was a, a cultural symbol of repentance and sorrow over sin and over the past. He tore his robes. How have we missed this? How have we allowed this to become white noise? How have we drowned this out with all the the information and the philosophies of the cultures that surround us? But here comes the ice axe of Scripture, the Word of God. And what does it do? It cuts to the heart. It cuts down to the truth of what's in our lives. It's reminded me of Acts 2 when Peter got up to preach on the day of Pentecost. In verse 36 it says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? That brothers, what shall we do is the evidence of the frozen sea having been smashed inside of them. They were complacent. They were were comfortable with religion. We just do this duty, we show up at the temple on these days, we just go through these motions and then we can all go back home and just live our lives. And people even come to church like that and it's fine. You come to church and you're like, I'm just going to come to church, I'm going to sing a song, the pastor will say something, I'll probably forget five minutes later, but then I'll go and I'll have lunch and I'll feel good. And that's true until the Holy Spirit begins to smash something inside of you until he begins to disturb something inside of you. You go, wait a minute, this isn't just nice feelings. This isn't just motivational speaking. This isn't just feeling good about my life for a minute. This is the word of God to me. He's actually speaking to me. He's actually delivering something to my life. When this ice axe hits your heart, you feel something, and it's impossible to remain unaffected. The white noise now has above it a distinct sound. You've heard the voice of God. This is incredible to me. And you know what? The Bible says that when God speaks to us, deep cries out unto deep, that the Spirit of God testifies with our spirits that we are children of God. It is, there's an inner witness. It's something deep inside. It's not just something from the outside. Everything else we hear is on the outside, but this is something we hear on the inside. It reminded me so much of Elijah when he was hiding away in the cave and he wanted to hear the voice of God and a fire raged, And he said, God, is your voice in the fire? And he listened to this loud burning fire and there was no voice of God. And a wind came and it, and it tore against the, you know, tore trees off the mountain and there was this massive wind and God's voice was not in the wind. And, and in all these elements that you would expect God to speak powerfully. And Elijah then says, and then I heard a still small voice within me. God was speaking to Elijah. That's how God speaks to us. Yes, you may hear something on the outside, but it resonates with something God is actually saying on the inside. See, God does something inside of us when we read it. He does something in our spirits. And Jeremiah grew up reading that book of Deuteronomy. He didn't read it as a scholar, analyzing it and explaining it. There's often, there's actually, they've done a study and there's a direct correlation to how much theological training a pastor has. And just so you know, I do believe in theological training and I do have some myself, but, but there's a correlation between how much theological training a pastor has and how ineffective their church is. Legitimately, the more degrees, the smaller the church or the less impact the church has. And it's usually because they, they, they begin to treat the word of God like a scholar. It's got to be analyzed and explained. It's no matter, it, it just becomes something natural now. We just got to understand the histories and the, and the little bits and the, and the nuances in, in, in the Hebrew and the Greek. And it all makes them sound very clever, but it doesn't produce life-changing power in people's lives. He didn't read it as a reformer searching for principles to be applied. Many of us do that with the Scriptures. Oh, I need a principle for my business. And once again, it's not a bad thing to find principles in the Word of God, but it's not life-giving. It can help. But the life in the Scriptures is in the encounter with the Spirit of God. Jesus said this to the Pharisees in John 5. He says, you search the Scriptures because in them you think you will find life. But these Scriptures testify about me. You're supposed to find me in the Scriptures and I give you life. So it's not just finding principles to be applied. The way that Jeremiah read the book of Deuteronomy is that this was a personal letter, a personal conversation that God was having with him personally. Do we read the scriptures like that? Are they something separate to us? Or when you read it, do you read it as a person addressing you personally, speaking into your life personally? It gave Jeremiah a history. He understood where he came from when he read the book of Deuteronomy, and it's true for us. The Bible says that we are one family. And we're a part of one body of Christ through all the generations. In fact, we've been engrafted into spiritual Israel. We're a part of that entire movement of God on this earth. You're not just a person who lives in a vacuum. When you're a believer, when we're a part of this church, we're a part of the church. And all of it's history. It gave Jeremiah a history. This is what I'm a part of. It gave him a theology a theology is a thought about God or a word about God. And we all have a theology, but, but this informed him of who God truly was. It establishes our lives in the truth of who God is. It gives us, if you don't have a theology or yours is severely lacking, here's one for you. Here's one for you. Read it and you'll find out who God is. And it gave him a responsibility, a history a theology and a responsibility a mission a role to play it's not just information for the sake of information it's news that god has created good works for you to walk in before there was even one of your days and that he has ordained for you to accomplish great things that you have an important role to play that he has consecrated you and set you apart to play this role so when you read the scriptures you find out where you, what you're a part of. You find out who your God is and what your identity is, and you begin to understand that there is a role for you to play. There is a job for you to do. It's a powerful thing when we get into the Scriptures. After some time, this great reformer king, Josiah, is killed in a battle in the valley of Megiddo. We read about it in 2 Chronicles 35, 23. It says, archers shot King Josiah. In fact, it was Egypt coming up against some other party, and, and Josiah met them in the field and confronted them, and, and the Egyptians said, our battle is not with you, Josiah, uh, we've, got, we, you know, we've got an issue with somebody else, go home, we don't want to fight with you today, and so he disguised himself and went back into battle, clearly he was just up for a fight that day, um, and so he gets shot, they didn't even know it was Josiah, so archers shot King Josiah, and he told his officers, take me away, I am badly wounded. So they took him out of his chariot, put him in his other chariot, and brought him to Jerusalem, where he died. He was buried in the tombs of his ancestors, and all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for him. Jeremiah composed laments for Josiah. And to this day, all the male and female singers commemorate Josiah in the laments. These became a tradition in Israel and are written in the laments. And so Josiah ends up composing this memorial, these songs for his friend, for somebody that he's journeyed with. And here in the book of Jeremiah, we find the death of the great reformer, the one who tore his robes when he heard the word of God, and, it, and the one who led Israel with the help of Jeremiah into this revival. And now it's time for Josiah's son, Jehoiakim, to take up the throne. And Jehoiakim takes up the throne and instantly shows no sign of ever having Read the book his father responded to so passionately. And this is something that weighs on my heart as well. Yeah, I was going through family photos um, this week and I found a photo of my grandfather baptizing people in, in the Irlands River in Mashadadorp out in Npumalanga and, and just in the river baptizing people, full suit. White coat. I mean, they did it proper those back in the day, and and he's in the Yalance River, and and I actually remember my dad telling me the story of that day, uh, how they were baptizing people, and the current was so strong after the rains that that it was actually washing them down river, and so as people were being baptized, every time they baptized somebody, they moved a little bit further down river, and everybody on the riverbanks just shuffled along. And there was a great revival that came in our country in the mid-1900s, a Pentecostal revival, and people understanding the power of the Holy Spirit and leaning into God and, 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 and you know, cities and communities and, and a nation turning to God in a powerful way, leading us into powerful movements of reconciliation and, you know, end, the end of apartheid and all these things and the people that were instrumental in that powerful move of God. But then comes the next generation. And what do they know? Have they had the revelation? This is why generational ministry is so powerful because, and this is why as, as, as people that are getting older, we should never look at young people today and go, ah, oh, there's no hope for them. We need to be investing in the next generation in a greater way than, than we can. It, it should be everything that we're doing because that's the generation that has to carry the gospel forward. That's the generation. And the the Bible even says that one generation declares his glory to the next generation. And there's this idea that the torch of the gospel is passed on from one generation to another. So many people live to build their own legacy. What is my legacy going to be? Look, we're not here to build our own legacies. It's great if we have good legacies at the end of our lives. but, But we're not here to focus on what is my legacy. You know what we're here to focus on? Passing the torch of the gospel on from generation to generation. So that when we're no longer here, Anchor Church is greater than anything we could have done as pioneers in this space. That there is a generation that comes up out of this that will run with the vision of this church and of God's church for centuries. We're not creating a church just for our lifetime. That would be utterly selfish, We're creating something that is to last. And what happens with Jehoiakim is that clearly the gospel wasn't passed on to him. It also shows us that faith is something that every individual needs to have for themselves. You cannot have your father's or your mother's faith. Then you don't really have faith. You have tradition. Tradition is not the same as faith. You need to know for your own self. Oh, I just go to church because that's what my family has always done. I grew up like that, so I just come on a Sunday. No, do you have faith? Has the Word of God smashed the sea inside of you? Are you alive to His voice? That's what we need. We need that desperately. Each individual needs their own faith. People always used to tell me, oh, you've got your grandfather's anointing. I said, thank you very much. But I don't. I have my own. I have my own anointing. It came from Jesus. I don't need another person's anointing. That's Old Testament. I don't need Elijah's mantle to fall on me like I'm some Elisha waiting here. No. At the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, every single individual in the room had a flame above his head. His own flame. He didn't need to borrow some flame from the next guy. Reinhard Bonke used to say, your name is on your flame. It's personal. God's called you. He speaks to you. Other journeys can inspire ours, but each of us need to meet with Jesus and His Word personally. Every church, therefore, is only one generation away from revival or extinction. Anchor Church could die with us. It absolutely could. If we do not do a good enough job of passing it over to the next generation. And unfortunately for Israel, the heartfelt reforms of Josiah were now in shreds. They were now in tatters as a result of Jehoiakim taking up the throne. So God tells Jeremiah something. In Jeremiah 36, and that's where we're going to be now for the rest of the morning. Jeremiah 36 verse 1. It says, In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it. All the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you from the days of Josiah until today. He tells him, write it down. Remember all the things. And so, and so Jeremiah gets his friend Barak, one of his good friends, and Jeremiah begins to dictate all the prophecies that God had given him. And Barak writes and, and writes and writes and records all these things that are being said because God realizes that this generation also needs to hear the word. God isn't secretive. He isn't trying to keep his will from you. He's not trying to keep you into the dark. How many of you have said, God, please will you speak to me? And he goes, um, I wrote a book right? Just think about it. I mean, if you, if, if you love biographies like I do, I, I love to read biographies of different people that have lived, sports personalities and people in history and whatever, and you've read a biography, and when it's an autobiography and it's their own words and their own thoughts, it's such an amazing thing. And, you know, we, we rush to read those things, but God wrote a book. Have you read it? What would His book that He wrote say to you, to your life? It's something that we should be embracing with all of our hearts. It's not just literature. It's not just an artifact of social history. Some people say, oh, the Bible, it has some beautiful poetry writings, some beautiful, you know, poetic works, and it has some, some incredible ancient wisdom, and it has some, you know, you know it, it is beautiful. And God uses poetry. 27% of this book is poetry. But praising it for its literary style would be like praising Einstein's theory of relativity for the beautiful handwriting. Oh, look at how beautiful this handwriting is in the theory of relativity. No, it's the theory itself that's amazing. Forget the handwriting. And that's the same with the Word of God. We don't praise it because it's beautiful literature. We praise it because of what it contains, Jeremiah calls his friend Baruch and he writes as Jeremiah dictates these life-changing words of truth and beauty, making the will of God known, inviting a response from God's people. Several months later, the armies of Babylon have arrived in the land. Babylon, massive empire in those days, is locked in a rivalry against Egypt to be the world power. And Babylon wants to take as much land as it can, the, you know, this Persian empire spreading throughout the land and, you've got, and then you've got the, the Egyptians the, at, at the height of the Egyptian empire marching into different lands and, and, and creating this massive empire. Guess who sits dangerously vulnerable right in the middle between Babylon and Egypt? Is Jerusalem. And the people feel that their lives are at risk The armies have arrived. It's no longer longer conjecture. They might come. They're planning. There's a rumor. They're here. In their tens of thousands, the most powerful empire, one of the most powerful empires of the day, are in Jerusalem with their armies. They're in the land. They're in fact camped on the land just slightly outside of Jerusalem where Jeremiah was originally from. They're camped out there. And so all of a sudden, there is panic, there is crisis in Jerusalem. And the people respond with, we've got to fast, we've got to pray, God's got to save us. Isn't that how life is for so many people? Like, we don't read God's word, we're not interested, I'm busy building my career, I'm doing my thing. Crisis, God, God, you know. That's exactly what happens. Now they're running around, and a crowd assembles at the temple. This is the biggest audience Jeremiah will ever have except Jeremiah has been forbidden from speaking in public. He's persona non grata to King Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim doesn't want to know anything. He wants to kill Jeremiah. He's already killed Uriah. So Jehoiakim kills one of the prophets, Uriah, for speaking God's word. And Jeremiah is not allowed to speak in public, but his friend Barach has written down the words of Jeremiah. And so he gets up in front of this massive crowd assembled, everybody panic-stricken, and he begins to just read out the word of God through the prophet Jeremiah to these people. Standing in the crowd is a young man by the name of Micaiah. And Micaiah hears these words and he thinks, This is incredible. Why have we not heard this before? The ice axe of Scripture hits Micaiah straight in the chest. And he goes, I I need to take this to my father. His father happens to be one of the king's counselors, happens to be one of the king's, a member of the king's cabinet, who at that moment was busy meeting with four other government officials. And so Micaiah gets Barak, and, he, and he, he runs over to his dad, sitting in, in this king's cabinet with these officials, and he says, you have to hear the word I just heard. It is the word of God. You have to hear what it says about our nation and about how we need to turn to him and how we will find safety in God's presence. And so they call Barak and They say, come, let him read it. And he reads the word to these cabinet officials. They hear God's word, and the ice axe strikes again. It hits all four of them. This is, this is life-changing. This is powerful. This smashes our complacency. The whole meeting is moved. Jeremiah 36, verse 16 says, And when they heard all the words, they turned to one another in fear. And they said to Barak, we must report these words to the king. We've got to take the word of Jeremiah to the king. These were responsible men. They knew when they heard something true. And what do you do when you hear something true? Responsible men and women respond. Responsible means the ability to respond. They heard the words and they respond wholeheartedly and they say, We must take this. They knew it was the word of God. We must take it to our king. But they also know their king. They know Jehoiakim, they know how he will respond. And so they realize that they're taking their own lives. They're taking their lives into their own hands by sharing it with him, the peril. In fact, they realize that the moment they share these words with the king, that both Jeremiah and Baruch are as good as dead. And so they say in in verse 19, Jeremiah 36:19, the official said to Baruch, go and hide you and Jeremiah and let no one know where you are. This is going to get dangerous. This is going to get dangerous. I worked with a pastor who in his young life had a band and s- toured places like Communist Russia, the Soviet Union, and smuggled Bibles into the Soviet Union by putting them inside of their guitar amps. This book will get you in a lot of trouble. It will get you in a lot of trouble, but it will change a nation and so they say we've got to go report these words to the king go and hide while we share it the problem with true and honest writing is that it often exposes how selfishly we've been living it's painful sometimes reading the scriptures can confront our selfishness but it's the kind of pain that doesn't condemn us it leads us to healing if you allow God's word to sometimes confront, you know, we've got people say, I, I believe this is what our culture says is acceptable today and, you know, I'm going to do it. If, if I want to live with my boyfriend, I know that the Bible says something different, but that's what our culture says, okay, and I think there should be a step between dating and marriage and so I'm going to do that. This is simply not allowing the word of God to confront what you think is right. It's a partial submission. You're picking and choosing what you like out of it. It's painful, but it leads to health. It leads to healing. So they take the stroll of Jeremiah to the king. And I love this scene because it reminds me of something from a movie or a series where it's winter. It's December in Jerusalem. And the king had built for himself a winter room. (laughs) That sounds like a great idea. I want to build myself a winter room. He's sitting in this winter room, which is a room that they built specifically for the cold winter months. And the king is sitting on a chair. He's got you know, some blankets wrapped around him and he's got a brazier of coals next to him and he's warming himself by the fire. And they come in and they say, king, we've got to read these words to you. You've got to hear this. And they start reading it out. They give it uh, to a servant of the king, Jehudai. And Jehudai takes the scroll to read it and, and the king is sitting there and he has a pen knife in his hand. He's got a little knife in his hand. And after Jehudiah had read three or four columns in the scroll, Jehoiakim leans over, cuts it off, cuts off what had been read, scrunches it up, and throws it into the coals, throws it into the fire, burns it. He says, no, carry on, carry on reading. Carry on reading your, your, your great prophecy. And they begin to laugh at this. All the advisors join in in the joking and the jeering. It turns into this little spectacle. They all think it's hilarious. The cabinet members who brought the scroll beg him, please listen to these words. Please take it seriously. But the king is unreachable. As the rest of the scroll is read, he continues to cut it into strips and burn it into the fire. There's a stark contrast created here between those who hear the word and respond to it and those who do not. And in fact, it's so poetic, even in this passage, because 17 years earlier, Jehoiakim's father sat in that same room and he was presented with the same message through the scroll of Deuteronomy by the state official Seppam. And he responds by tearing his robe recognizing God's word and immediately repenting. But now a generation later, Josiah's son, Jehoiakim is presented with a scroll by Shaphan's son. It's literally father and son hearing the word. The father and father and the son and the son. Shaphan's son is now reading the word to Josiah's son in an exact way replication of what took place 17 years earlier. But instead of tearing his garments, he tears up the book in ridicule. You have to do one of those two things. It's, this is an ice axe. This is not a pamphlet. You have to do one of those two things. You're either going to rip your own gar- garments in repentance or you're going to have to rip up the word of God and burn it for your own self. There's no neutrality in this. There's a parade of nonchalance here. You know, why make such a fuss? Why make such a spectacle? Why not just listen to it and go, that's you know good advice. Thank you so much for sharing. We'll see you again next week. No, he has to make a parade out of it. He has to make a spectacle out of it. Have you ever seen somebody pretend like they're not afraid? because they want to maintain the illusion of control. That's why we minimize this book. That's why we minimize it. No, no, that's nice words, Pastor, but I'm actually in control. We We make a parade of nonchalance, but soon we can see it's just an act, trying to convince ourselves more than anyone else. It betrays excessive anxiety. And this is why people make cheap jokes about the Bible. It's why so many are intent on bringing it down to earth, mocking it wherever they can. Cheap joke-making in the presence of the holy is a defense against an awareness that will require a life change. Jehoiakim was desperately trying to keep the truth of Jeremiah's word at bay. I I don't want to hear it, I don't want to hear it. But his response shows that he wasn't simply ignorant. He was complexly selfish. I'm not going to be told. I'm not going to submit. I'm not going to surrender. He knew he was hearing God's word. But any indication that he would give that he knew would require a response. So he gives an elaborate charade of nonchalance, cutting up the scroll, throwing it in the fire. Jehoiakim with his penknife is a parody of anybody who attempts. To use scripture. Scripture is not something that we use. It's not something that we boil down into mildly useful. It's not something that we read and go, okay, I'll accept that little bit. That sounds nice. This part doesn't really meet what I think, so I'm going to leave that out. You are essentially Jehoiakim when you do that. You rip and you cut You chop up the word of God into little pieces so that you can control it and even put it to practical use to keep the initiative in your own hands and to use it for something practical like warming yourself on a cold day. So people read the scriptures and essentially what they do is they go, well, I like that bit. I'll hold on to that. But I don't like that bit. That's not for me. I'm going I'm to use this book, but I'm going to use it the way I want to use it, not the way others tell me it should be used. I'm not allowing this book to confront my selfishness, to redirect my center, to find the gospel, to understand the grace of God. The grace of God, what is the grace of God? Now, I'll just take a few principles. I'll leave that part out. Jehoiakim with his penknife. That's what we are when we reduce this to some little artifact that we will use to our own benefit. No, this is God speaking to you. And the full counsel of God is for fullness in your life. And what we should do is, rather than ripping it up and tearing it out and making it useful, the appropriate response is reverent answering. The Word of God is always more than we are. It's always previous to us. It's always over us. And when we determine to wrestle control over our lives out of God's hands, to keep the initiative in our own, we chop the word of God up. We reduce scripture to something impersonal so that we can use it for our own purposes or discard it at our own pleasure. That's why a lot of people take the Bible and they turn it into, well, what does, how does this, oh, it says I'm going to be rich. It says I'm going to be rich. Now the Bible speaks into wealth and it speaks into all those things and there's a healthy way to approach it. But a lot of people go, I don't want to read about surrender and following Jesus in a personal relationship. How am I going to be rich? That's what they want. We chop it up. But scripture cannot be burned. The word of God cannot be destroyed. It's been thrown into the fire many times, but it's never been suppressed. Jeremiah and Baruch, they simply go back to rewriting the words of God. In Jeremiah 36, verse 27, it says, Now after the king had burned the scroll with the words that Baruch wrote at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Take another scroll and write on it all the former words that were in the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned. But this time, as they write it, God gives them generous additions to what was written. It becomes a bigger book than ever. And now it's also famous because this is the book that the king burned. Before you know it, the shops and the streets of Israel are flooded with the new version, the new international version of Jeremiah's book. It has a bigger impact than ever. When you try and suppress God's word, it has this way of just growing in influence in in, in an exponential way. These extended editions are soon circulated throughout Jerusalem. Eugene Peterson he writes about a question that he loves to ask people to try and kind of, it's kind of like an open gambit that he does with them to, to kind of just learn something about them. He says, if you were stuck on a desert island and you could take one book with you, excluding the Bible, what book would you take? You know, if you said something like Shakespeare, he would understand that you're a, you're a certain kind of person who loves, you know, a certain kind of poetry and and. and and writing. If you were if you said that you wanted Paradise Lost by John, John Milton, you would be somebody like a theologian that wants to understand the colour between the scriptures. If you were somebody, if you said the Guinness Book of World Records, you're somebody that just basically boils life down to, to facts. But he said the best answer he ever got was Butler's practical guide to boat building. Butler's practical guide. And the words of Jeremiah, the words of Scripture, are this indication to us. Deuteronomy was a practical guide to rebuilding society after they had forgotten about God. Jeremiah's book was used to rebuild lives after the exile. And to this, 64 other books were added that continue to present the word of God to us continue to tell us about the gospel of grace to shipwrecked people like us, helping us to respond in faith with reverent answering and find salvation in Jesus himself. That's what we have. Let's not turn this Bible into plausibility and and, and a few guidelines and principles but let's meet Jesus in His Word and submit our lives to Him wholeheartedly. Amen? Hey, we got to pick up the Word of God. If we're going to be raised, trained, mature, effective, if we're going to have that relationship, we need the ice axe of Scripture smashing the frozen sea within us. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me this morning as we pray?